This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. When you hear cage-free eggs, do you picture hens outside roaming around? Well, that's what those egg companies want you to think. Really, cage-free hens live crammed indoors. Meanwhile, Vital Farms hens are pasture-raised, on actual pastures, with plenty of grass and sunshine for healthier hens and better eggs. Vital Farms pasture-raised. Visit vitalfarms.com coupon and look for us in the black carton at the grocery store. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Allie. How are you today, Allie? I'm doing pretty good. Enjoying the weekend. How are you? Good. I am doing great. We just wrapped up a great interview with Mixter Hyde on YouTube, and I will definitely link you guys to that. By the time you hear this, that interview should already be out. We talked podcasting. We talked true crime cases. We will definitely link it on social media. Also, it is after the 15th, which means our Patreon bonus episode is up. It is about the murders of Kanika Powell and Sean Green, whether they're related, whether they're not. Did their top secret jobs have anything to do with it? That's on Patreon.com. It is available to everyone who donates $2 or more per month. It's Patreon.com slash InsightPod. And a huge thank you to Danielle from the Between Us Girls podcast for helping us out with the Kanika and Sean episode, lending us her voice. Between Us Girls is a topical, funny podcast. You guys really should go check it out. But tonight, we're going to talk about the death of Gareth Williams. At the time, Gareth Williams was working with MI6. He was found under rather mysterious circumstances in his apartment. And the truth is, nobody knows if he was murdered, if it was an accident, if it was a suicide. So let's go ahead and dive into that. Gareth was born on September 26, 1978, on the Welsh island of Anglesley to Ian and Ellen Williams. He was considered a child prodigy in maths. He took his general certificate of secondary education in maths and he was still in primary school. This is a test that is usually taken at the end of year 11 in school It's the equivalent of sophomore year in high school in the US or year 10 in Australia. So he took his A-levels, which is usually taken by kids who are leaving secondary school at the age of 13. While he was still in secondary school, he enrolled in Bangor University and he finished his four-year degree with honours by the age of 17. So obviously, this is a guy who is extremely bright. As a teenager, he was described as socially awkward, although it seems his closest friends, they didn't see that side of him as much as the warm, generous side. He has also been described as naive about people. Close to his family, he got into competitive cycling in his teen years as a hobby, and he shared that with his father, and it was something that remained a passion for him. In 1997, when he was just 18 years old, Gareth started his PhD program at Cambridge. While he was there, at about the age of 21, he was approached by the British Security Services, and in 2001, he began working at the UK Government Communications Headquarters. It is known as the GCHQ, and that's what we'll refer to it for the rest of the episode. It's also called the Donut due to its shape. 
It's located in the suburbs of Cheltenham, which is where Gareth would live for the next decade. He started an advanced maths program at another university, but he was so focused on his work, he did not complete his studies there. It was really hard for him to do work his long hours at GCHQ and keep up with his advanced level studies. It said that being at GCHQ was an exciting experience for Gareth because finally he was with people who were on or above his intellectual level. But it was also a time of increased pressure because for the first time ever, he was with people who were on or above his intellectual level. It's easy to see that as a knife that cuts both ways. What exactly Gareth did, we're not entirely sure. He very likely worked on codes. He traveled to the U.S. at one point to work at Fort Meade when a group of British-based extremists were planning bombings on flights in North America. So I think it's safe to say that he also worked in counterintelligence. In 2009, he seconded to MI6 to work on Well, we're not exactly sure what he was working on. MI6 is Britain's foreign intelligence agency, kind of like Australian Secret Intelligence Service or the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, in the US. The media characterises him as a spy. A friend of his gave this interview saying that Gareth was learning his new identity for a spy mission. Gareth worked in counterterrorism. However, he was only at MI6 for less than a year. It has been reported, and I'm going to quote here, but Williams was a middle-ranking technician asserting himself in a number of sensitive areas, any of which which could theoretically have brought him into contact with enemies of our state. So it sounds pretty serious. Also, this was a short-term arrangement, and he was staying in an MI6 safe house apartment while he was in London. He was scheduled to return to GCHQ in September of 2010, and he was planning on moving back into his old apartment that he has been renting for 10 years. None of this makes me think he was actually going undercover with a new ID that he needed passports and the like for. But then again, maybe he was, and his return to work for GCHQ was all part of the cover for his spy work. Now that we've given the background on the story, and before we get too much into the rest of it, we need to take a very quick break for an ad from a sponsor we're very excited to have, the Canvas people. Probably more years ago than I should admit was the last time I had formal family photos done. And I went ahead and paid a bit more to get that package you can get that includes a CD with some of our favorite images. I had visions of all the things I would do with this, you know, magnets, Christmas cards, special things as gifts. And and the CD, it sat there for a while until I found out about canvaspeople.com. And using Canvas People all these years ago, I was able to create photo canvases to hang in my house. Canvaspeople.com is a very easy to use service. You take your favorite photo memories and you can turn them into custom beautiful artwork for you to enjoy every day. You can take those newborn photos or family photos or wedding photos and bring them to life with a canvas from the Canvas People. Or maybe you just caught that perfect candid shot and you want to do something more special than just getting it printed. Or worse, just letting it sit on your computer or your phone for the next couple of years. These high-quality canvases are made here in the U.S. with fast shipping and great attention to detail. Normally, an 11 by 14 canvas is priced at $69.99. 
this limited time offer, you can get that canvas for free. You just pay the shipping. This makes a great gift, especially with Mother's Day coming up. All you do is go on canvaspeople.com, click order canvas, create your custom 11 by 14 canvas, and use the promo code SITE at checkout. It's S-I-G-H-T. On August 11th, Gareth was talking to his sister on the phone. He was wrapping things up in London in anticipation of going back to GCHQ. A week after he talked to his sister, his sister tried to call him again, but didn't get any answer. After not being able to get in touch with him after repeated attempts over the next few days, she called the police for a welfare check. It wasn't unusual for Gareth to travel for work, obviously, and he couldn't always tell his family maybe exactly where he was going or what he was doing, but he never just disappeared without checking in with his family for a week. On August 23rd, the police entered the flat on this welfare check, and on first appearances, the flat was very tidy. There was an iPhone, a few SIM cards, and an Apple notebook on the table. The iPhone, it would later be discovered, had been erased and returned to factory settings. In the bedroom, there was a dressing gown and a quilt on the floor, and that actually stood out to the police because it was the only clutter or mess in the place. Also to note, seeing as this was summer, the heat in the apartment was turned on. And while I couldn't find any reports on the actual setting on the thermostat, it has been reported that it was turned up. We'll get into the details of everything else that was found in the flat when we discuss the investigation later. This is just what was seen in the first walkthrough. In the bathtub was a red North Face hold-all or duffel bag, a large one, with red liquid seeping out of it. The tub was empty otherwise, no water or anything, and the bag was padlocked from the outside. Inside the bag was Gareth Williams' decomposing body. He was five foot seven, and he had a lean, athletic-type build. So the police immediately thought he'd been dismembered. But that isn't what actually happened. He was just contorted into extreme version of the fetal position. So he had his arms across his chest and his legs were pulled up. Also in the bag, under Gareth's naked body, was the key to the padlock. The area around the bathtub, and in fact throughout the apartment, as you said before, Charlie, it was tidy and undisturbed. There was no obvious spots of blood, no broken or disturbed furniture, and it didn't appear that anything had been stolen. Valuable items, as you said earlier, they were out in full view and untouched. Time of death is usually hard to pinpoint exactly, but it's believed Gareth died on August 16. Based on the condition of the body and the times people reported last seeing and hearing from Gareth, it's most likely it was the 16th, which was a week prior to his body being found. Prior to his death, Gareth had taken a trip to the United States. When his body was found, his parents were actually on a return trip from the United States themselves, so it's possible he was there on a vacation rather than on official MI6 business. But of course, there are suggestions that the vacation with his parents was a cover for being out of the country, doing maybe some sort of covert surveillance in the United States. He was back in the UK when he talked to his sister on August 11th. Four days before he died, he went to a drag show. To hear the media tell it, this was all part of some secret fetish that he had. But seriously, 
if going to a drag show is salacious, I'll never become president. Drag shows, for anyone who's never been, they're fantastic. Men perform while dressed as women. There's usually a lot of talent and a whole lot of makeup. The media also spun this to Gareth being gay. Not all drag queens are gay. Not all people who like drag shows are gay. And there's also a big difference between dressing up as a woman for a performance and living your life as a woman because that's your gender identity. And going to see these shows, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean he was gay. It doesn't mean he was transgender. It doesn't mean he had a fetish. This is something that surprises me was portrayed in such a salacious manner when it, to me, it seems rather benign. There is some CCTV footage of Gareth that we'll talk about in a minute, but that CCTV footage led authorities to start looking at places near the Holland Park tube station in London, and they found out that a man fitting Gareth's description had frequented a pastry shop in the area. He'd been there on consecutive days and for hours at a time, which made him more familiar to the people there. He sat in the back with his laptop and occasionally had people join him. So back to the CCTV footage. It was taken near the Holland Park tube station on August 14, so two days before Gareth was thought to have died. There were two images released to the public from this day, one of him entering the station and the other is him in an elevator. He's alone in both these pictures and he appears to be carrying a mid-size white shopping bag. Gareth was caught again on CCTV the following day, on the 15th. It's 2pm and he was caught on a camera at a cash machine and visiting Harrods, which is a high-end department store. He's seen at 30 minutes after that, walking along Hens Crescent towards Sloan Street. Now, I mention these streets not to impress you with my vast knowledge of London geography, But because both the Holland Park tube station area and taking Hands Crescent towards Sloan would bring him very near multiple foreign embassies and consulates. If they're thinking that he was engaging in some sort of covert surveillance on his trip to the US, perhaps these wanderings were also part of that. An odd thing you'll note if you look up the three still images of the CCTV footage that have been released, Gareth is wearing a red shirt, khaki pants, and carrying a mid-size white shopping bag in all three. And that's despite them being taken over the course of two days. The autopsy could find no apparent cause of death. Gareth was not stabbed. He was not shot. He didn't suffer any massive blow. There was no blunt force trauma to his skull. He did have two small bruises on his elbow, but those could have been received any number of ways. He could have banged his elbow on a table the day before. He could have banged his elbow as he was getting into the bag if he went into the bag himself. We don't know if Gareth was alive when he went into the bag or if he was already dead and someone put him into the bag or if he was alive but unconscious and someone put him into the bag. These holdalls are well sealed. They're what you would take on a float trip or a camping trip because they are so watertight. And I've seen it reported that carbon dioxide buildup could have caused suffocation in 30 minutes in the bag. I don't know if like in the Graham Thorne case where they used a breathing machine in the trunk, if that's how they tested this. I don't know how they tested the carbon dioxide buildup, but I would have to assume it was with a breathing machine. The first set of toxicology results came back inconclusive, as did the second set. 
There are two things that really limit toxicology results, particularly in this case. First, advanced decomposition. Gareth's remains, he had decomposed to the point that they did not even make his family identify his body, but they rather used photographs because they didn't want the family to have to see him like that. Which is understandable. He was in that bag for a week. I wouldn't imagine it was a nice sight. This level of decomposition makes accurate toxicology results difficult. The second limitation is they don't know what to test for. There are standard screenings for the most common things, alcohol, medications, illicit drugs. But like in our episode on the Tylenol cyanide murders, they didn't routinely test for cyanide and they had to go outside to look for it. They wouldn't even looked for it had they not already had clues of it. Not every possible poison is or can be tested for. If the authorities don't know what they're looking for, they can't be sure that they actually tested for it. So it is possible that he was poisoned or drugged with something that was not in any of the toxicology panels. In the flat, detectives found several things of note. Like you said, Charlie, there were no obvious signs of a break-in or a theft. There was a small amount of someone else's blood in the communal hallway, but I don't know if that's necessarily strange. It was a communal hallway. It was a safe house. It wasn't like Gareth was the only person that had lived there in recent times. There was an old and small spot of Gareth's blood on the carpet near the stairs inside the flat. Again, that's not particularly strange. This could have been from a drip from a cut or even something as minuscule as a nosebleed. There were two partial shoe prints in the kitchen, but they weren't substantial enough for size or tread to be determined. There were traces of Gareth semen in the bathroom and in the main bedroom. Nothing that really screams bloody murder to me yet. It was also nothing unusual, as I said, for a communal house either. But there was also a clipping from a newspaper, The Observer, that was found in his flat. The date was one day prior to his last known web search. It was an article about what people most regretted on their deathbeds. These included wishing they had the courage to live true to myself or let myself be happier. In the bedroom and in another hold all bag was found some high value clothing items. There were 26 pairs of shoes and boots with designer labels. Only four pairs had appeared to have been ever worn. There was also a few women's wigs still wrapped. There was also nail polish and makeup, and these were all unused. And there was about fifteen to twenty thousand pounds worth of high-end women's clothing, which would be about twenty-five thousand dollars. It all appeared new, in perfect condition. Based on receipts found, it appeared most of the clothes and shoes were bought in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine. This is a significant expense, seeing as his salary was probably close to £40,000. So we're looking at basically half of his salary here. But I mean, I guess he was living quite frugal otherwise. He lived in furnished apartments and not accruing anything in way of personal belongings. At the inquest, when asked if the clothing would have fit Gareth, the answer was, possibly. So what about these clothes? Let's get into that. What were these clothes for? Gareth's friend and sister have said that he would buy high-end clothing as gifts for them, and the clothing in the flat was in their sizes. It's possible that these were bought as gifts, though I have to say it's odd that he would have bought them up to two years previously and never got around to gifting them. That was 
a lot of money in clothing. You think that if they were a gift, he would have given it to them that following birthday or Christmas, not hung on to them for two years. We're looking at designer clothing here. They go out of fashion from season to season. It doesn't make sense why he would hold on to them. So let's say he bought them to have but not to gift. They were all unworn, so it isn't as though he was cross-dressing and wearing them himself. I saw that some of the clothes were medium-sized, some were small-sized, and while it's possible the medium-sized clothing would fit him, I doubt the small-sized clothes would. He was 5'7". He was lean, but it was an athletic lean. He was muscular, cyclist lean. And I've seen pictures of his sister, and based on these pictures, if the clothes were in her size, he would have torn them in half trying to get into them. She is a very slender woman. I think I read that some of the clothing was a size 8. There is no way he would fit a size 8. Gareth had taken two six-week fashion courses at a local college, so we do know that fashion was an interest of his. Still, it's quite a lot of money to spend on items that just interested him when he was rather frugal otherwise. He lived in furnished apartments, he didn't accrue a lot of property or assets or even just junk in his house. You know me, I have a however here. People do spend their money on all sorts of things, That may seem odd to those without their same passions. In my front sitting room of my house, we have four pieces of decor that are actually Lego Star Wars creations, including a huge Millennium Falcon mounted to the wall. And so I'm not talking cheap Lego sets either. So, you know, who knows why people buy the things they buy. But the finding of the clothing and Gareth's very private life, it led to some wild tabloid speculation and the reporting of untruths. There was one rumour repeated in articles shortly after his death, and that was one that Gareth was known to frequent gay escorts and had the phone numbers of some in his flat. And this is just not true. There is one eyewitness report that Gareth was once spotted in a gay bar, We know how fallible eyewitnesses can be in broad daylight, so take that to a bar situation, which we all know aren't known for their bright lighting and sober customers. Another rumour is that bondage material was found in his flat, and that led to some to think that he may have gotten into the hold-all as some sort of sex game. And I've learnt more than I ever thought I would learn about this, and I hope that I can somehow permanently remove the searchers this case has made me do for my internet history. But we will leave it at that until theories of how all of this could went down. But I'm bringing it up now because it's important to know that no actual bondage materials was found in his home. There was some equipment related to mountaineering and possibly cycling, which we knew he did, but definitely not bondage equipment. Something that gets points for being partially true is that Gareth did visit bondage websites, but even the coronial inquest ruled that this was not significant. In fact, the searches happened four times over the course of two years. This was hardly an obsession or even an active interest. To me, this sounds more like curiosity than anything else. Now that we've put out the foundation of the case, let's go ahead and get into the theories and the main theories on what happened to Gareth. I'll give away the official ruling slash rulings. In 2012, the coronial inquest ruled that Gareth was probably unlawfully killed 
but it was unlikely authorities would ever figure out exactly what happened. That almost raises more questions than answers, but it gets muddier. In November of 2013, the Metropolitan Police concluded their three-year investigation by saying that it was more probable that no one else was in the flat at the time of Gareth's death. So we have the coroner saying it's probable he was unlawfully killed, and the police saying it was more probable he wasn't. So if you're hoping we're going to solve this one today, it's unlikely because even the authorities who have far more information than we do can't agree. There are a few possibilities of what happened. One, he put himself in the bag and suffocated when he couldn't get out. Two, someone subdued him and put him in the bag where he suffocated. Or three, he was dead when he went into the bag. Let's start with the he did it himself theories, and this splits into two sections, suicide or accident. The strongest bit of evidence that he did it himself is that there was no real proof anyone else was there. There was a small amount of DNA on the zipper of the bag, but it wasn't enough to prove that someone else was there in that moment. It was small enough. It's possible it was there from a previous time. On the suicide theory, Due to the media rumors and also the clothing that was found in his flat, it's said that due to the shame or guilt over being gay or transgender, he chose to kill himself. Let's just start by putting it out there. We don't know if he was gay, transgender, or anything. We don't know anything about his sexual orientation or gender identity. He didn't really date much at all. So there's not much evidence that he was gay or straight. None of the clothing in his apartment appeared to have been worn by him or anyone else. He did have a friend say that if he was gay, he would have told her or his sister. It wasn't as though they were against homosexuality or he would have thought he had to hide it from those closest to him. The British security offices no longer views an employee's personal life as impacting their ability to do their work. So some people believe he wouldn't have felt pressure from work because the official standpoint is they don't care. We all know that the official work policy versus the culture of the work is not always the same. So I don't know that we can say for sure that he wouldn't have felt that he needed to hide it from his employer. But like I said, we don't know. I got the impression from various articles that some in the police force did think he was gay. But was this enough of a concern that he would commit suicide over it? I don't know. As far as being transgender, that doesn't quite fit. He and a friend were into manga, which are Japanese comic books, and they planned to go to conventions. There were those women's wigs found in his apartment, but they weren't traditional hair colors like blonde or brunette. They were bright colors like pink and orange. And that these wigs were for costumes, not for wearing out and about. You can see a photo online taken from his flat, and it's a bright orange wig. And one of my big problems with this is that if he was struggling that much over his gender identity and didn't want anyone to know about it to the point that he would rather be dead, why did he leave all those clothes where people could find them? Why didn't he get rid of the quote-unquote evidence that he was transgender? Especially when you know that there's a chance your family could find you. And really, if you want to commit suicide, there are easier more, uh, I don't want to say effective, but there are easier ways to do it than what happened. Exactly. This is the oddest way to commit suicide. How did he even know it was going to work? The suicide theory simply falls apart for me any way we look at it. 
Also in the realm of he did it himself is that it was possibly due to sexual misadventure. Perhaps extreme bondage is what turned him on and it went as far as he couldn't get out of the bag. A statement from his landlady in Cheltenham was read at the inquest. She reported an incident from before he went to London where he called for help after tying himself to a bed. He was in his boxes and laying on his back when she and her husband went to see what was wrong. They obviously freed him, but he was all embarrassed and he said he was just trying out escapology. Although the landlady and her husband both said they felt like it was more sexually motivated, they said they did not see anyone else in the flat with him that night. They also said they don't remember him in the 10 years he lived there, that he never had people over in general, he never partied and he never kept odd hours. Then again, on the other hand, maybe this was escapology and he'd just taken it to the next level. That he got himself into the bag with the key, either he put the key in first, making it part of the challenge, or he dropped the key at some point and he couldn't reach it, causing him to be stuck in the bag. I think it was part of the inquest, but you'll see that a military expert and a yoga master that is basically Gareth's height and weight, tempted to do it and couldn't get in the bag easily. However, there is a guy on YouTube, actually there are a few on YouTube, but the one we are talking about here is David Winpenny, and he's kind of become an expert. You'll see him quoted in a lot of places about this case. But long story short, David is about an inch taller than Gareth, but based on looks, he seems thinner, and he was able to get himself into the bag. But there is a serious issue in that he is hampered by the bathtub and it's difficult for him to do it. But it's an interesting video and it's worth giving it a watch. And even though he was able to do it, he ended the video saying that he didn't believe that Gareth did it himself. He stayed in the bag for six minutes and he didn't feel the slightest bit woozy and it wasn't like he wasn't getting enough air. He didn't try to unlock it himself. He had his faculties there with him. But the thing is, we really don't know if Gareth tried to unlock himself either. One thing that is mentioned as suspicious is there were no prints on the bathtub. So I guess the question that comes to me is, is it possible that Gareth could have gotten into the bag without using his hands to brace himself or lower himself down using the tub or the walls? Look, I don't know. I think it would be difficult. David Winpenny was able to, but then again, he did use his feet to stand in the tub. But in Gareth's case, due to the fluids involved in the decomp process, it's possible any footprints in the tub, they wouldn't have been able to be detected. But if he did do this to himself on accident, but then why was the heat turned up in summer and his phone wiped clean? And the whole bathroom was clean. There was no fingerprints or footprints. None of this makes sense. It makes it seem to me that there was a second party there to have been involved at some stage. The heat and the cleanup does make me think that there was someone else there, but it doesn't necessarily say that someone else was there in that moment. But moving on to this was possibly murder or that there was someone else involved... Being that he worked with MI6 and being in a spy-related field, possibly being a spy or connected to counterterrorism, perhaps his death was a murder and it was linked back to his work. Police released 
an e-kit composite of a couple seen trying to visit his apartment in the month or two prior to his death. They're described as casually dressed in their mid-20s and possibly of Mediterranean descent. I'm not sure if they're going off looks on that or if they had an accent. A neighbor in the apartment building buzzed them in, not Gareth. Seeing as Gareth had very little social life outside of a drink after work with colleagues on occasion, police do want to know who these people were. It's possible they were just friends or being in their 20s, they were possibly students from the fashion courses he took. But police would like to know who they are and to see if there is a possibility that they're tied to Gareth's death. And perhaps keeping this spy world in mind, this couple had ties to a foreign government. In 2015, Boris Karpachkov, a former Russian spy who was exiled and now lives in the UK, gave an interview to a tabloid paper saying Gareth was killed by a Russian double agent. While at GCHQ, Gareth was spotted by and then befriended by a double agent. This double agent was tasked with recruiting Gareth to the SVR, which is the foreign intelligence arm of Russia. It's what used to be known as the KGB. Knowing he wouldn't just sign on, they had to coerce him onto their side. He was invited out for drinks, and while there, he was drugged. While he was passed out, sexually explicit staged photos were taken of him. The plan was to blackmail him into working for the CVR, but Gareth wouldn't cave. He threatened to report the double agent to the authorities, and he was killed to prevent him from doing this. It is strange because you would think that this kind of house, which was a safe house, it would have some kind of all-around-the-clock security or other offices around. So it's strange to me right off the bat that something like this could happen here. If it was someone Russian spy-related, why would they do it in such an obvious way? If you're trying to stage a suicide, wouldn't you do it in the most believable way possible? Why not just hang him in a closet or overdose him on, I don't know, rat poison instead of using a method that's never been used before and is 100% certain to draw attention and suspicion. Exactly. The Russians could have killed him in a way that wouldn't have brought nearly as much scrutiny. They could have just poisoned him. They could have just shot him on the street. Going into a safe house of MI6 to murder someone seems like the riskiest way to do it. But then again, maybe that's exactly what they want us to think. It's also possible this was a murder unrelated to his work, though. Gareth didn't have many friends or enemies or vindictive exes or really anything going on outside of his work. I've seen interviews with a few friends that he did have, and they all said they didn't know Gareth to have any serious relationships, that he was shy and awkward and he kept to himself. And while he was a cyclist, no one needed to knock him off the competition circuit. And there's always a chance that maybe he wasn't alone, but it wasn't a deliberate murder. Perhaps he was with someone, maybe it was a sexual partner, which would explain why he was naked, and he was taking part in some sort of bondage game. And then it all went wrong. The partner wiped down the place, cleared the phone to get rid of any of communications they had, and then left. Let's go ahead and talk about who cleaned the place, because I kind of alluded to it earlier that possibly the place was clean, but also possibly it wasn't cleaned 
that night, but rather at a different time. One thing that really raises my suspicions that something is being covered up aside from the place being clean is that Gareth missed seven days of work, including important meetings, and no one from MI6 went looking for him. He lived very close to where he worked. No one went by and knocked on his door. Nobody wondered where he was. That doesn't make sense to me. And apparently it was very unlike him to miss work. Well, I know at my work, and it's not a high security by any means, but if I'm more than 30 minutes late, I've got text messages and phone calls looking for me. Do you have any other thoughts on this case before we wrap up? It is possible that he was alone and he was trying out something a bit different. If the landlord's story is true, maybe he was taking it to the next level. I definitely don't think that it's possible that the place could be entirely wiped down of any footprints and fingerprints and his phone cleared without a third party involvement at some stage. Whether they were there when he did it or walked in afterwards, there's someone else involved. Do I think it's some big Russian spy cover-up? Yeah, I don't think so. My thoughts are basically that I don't know how he's killed. I can't really imagine him doing it to himself. I do think there was some type of cleanup, cover-up of whatever reason. It's possible it wasn't related to his death. It's possible that he was having people to the flat as part of his MI6 work and knowing the Metropolitan Police would be coming in to investigate, MI6 did clean the place, not to cover up his death so much as to cover up whatever else he was doing while he was there. On speaking of whether he did it to himself or he was murdered, the police summed it up by saying, quote, the reality is that for both hypotheses, there exist evidential contradictions and gaps in our understanding. In other words, every possibility has holes. And how terrible for Gareth's family not only to have to mourn their loved one, but to not have answers and to see his fake personal life that's been dreamed up by tabloid journalists splashed all over the news. To close, we want to thank you for joining us this week on Insight. And let's just go ahead and do our shout outs now to our Patreon supporters, Kim F., Megan M., Melissa H. and Dana Scully, whose real name I do know, but I will not give away. I was about to say, it's it's X-Files contacting us. And this is a government-involved episode. It's all coming together. Do I need my tinfoil hat? (laughs) So we just want to thank them for being our Patreon supporters. And to our five-star reviewers, Ginger Tyne, Mel Poli, Long Haul Trucker 76, Mrs. Wawowski... Biloxi Chick, and someone who let their toddler just bang on a keyboard, F-H-D-T-J-B-D-F. Thank you guys so much for your reviews. We really appreciate them, and we've gotten so many more. We're really, we're going to be on this, these shout-outs for a long time, and we really, really appreciate it. If you want to talk to us about this case or anything else, the best way to find us is in our Facebook group. It's Insight Two Words. Just go ahead and search it up. We also have a page where we post our episodes, but most things go in the group. And if they go on the page, they also go in the group. We also have email if you want to contact us directly, insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can talk to me on Twitter at insightfulpod. You can talk to Allie on Instagram at insightpod. 
Our Patreon is patreon.com slash insightpod. Again, new episode going up. If you join now, you'll have access to the Kanika Powell, Sean Green episode and our episode from last month as well. We leave two episodes up at a time. That is all for this week, and we will see you guys next week.